0: My guest today on Washed Up Journalist is Daniel Peterson, who spent a 25 year career in journalism that culminated as bureau chief for Newsweek in Houston, London, and Atlanta. Peterson grew up in a family of lawyers. But in the 1970s, when the words Watergate and Woodward and Bernstein were part of everyday news, he decided the world would be better served with an effective journalist, not another litigator. Having been a literature major in college and having not taken one actual journalism course during his undergraduate and graduate years, he was hired by a daily newspaper in his home state, mostly on the virtue of writing samples from his days as a student. Peterson joined the Des Moines Register in 1977 as a political reporter. There, he ran the famed Iowa Poll, America's oldest newspaper poll. He joined Newsweek in 1983, first in the magazine's Los Angeles Bureau, then later in Texas. In 1988, he left for England, where he became the London Bureau Chief. Among the many important stories he covered, Peterson was present in Berlin in November 1989 to witness the fall of the Berlin Wall an event his magazine called the biggest break of almost any journalist's lifetime. Peterson covered a wide array of stories during his time with Newsweek, including U.S. presidential politics, a string of British prime ministers, the breakup of the Soviet Union, the ongoing saga of the royal family, many school shootings, and other leading issues of the 20th century. After journalism, Peterson worked for 11 years as the founding president of the Buffett Early Childhood Fund which invests in early childhood practice and policy. Today, he serves as the senior advisor at the Atlanta Speech School, which now is training online more than 65,000 early childhood teachers nationwide in the power of language and literacy. Daniel Peterson, welcome to Washed Up Journalists. Thank you for being with me today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: I'd like to start with this incredible moment in your career. It's November 9th, 1989. You're in Berlin, and and your presence there just happens to coincide with a major world event. I was wondering if you could take us back to that moment and and how you got there in the first place.
1: Well, uh, it's uh, well known that it's better to be lucky than smart, and this is a great illustration of that. I think you could argue that the fall of the Berlin Wall was the um, most iconic event of the entire 20th century, which was really about a collision between um, communism, which crystallized uh, during World War I with the Russian Revolution, and which um, fell to its knees in 1989 in Berlin. Uh, And so, the 20th century on one level was just about a clash between free market capitalism and controlled market communism. I was uh, London bureau chief in 1989, I'd been in London for eight months. Um, But there was a lot going on uh, on the continent, as Brits called Europe at the time, and we'll call it again after Brexit. The fact was that um, there were cracks in the Iron Curtain. And uh, so I went from London to Berlin on November 8th to cover the cracks. And what was happening as a result of the cracks was that people were leaving uh, East Berlin and they were going uh, in a big horseshoe-shaped trip of 500 miles uh, through Uh, the opening borders in Hungary and Czechoslovakia uh, to get all the way to West Berlin, which if they had gone across the wall would have taken them maybe two miles, but it took 500 miles and an arduous journey. And as the cracks got wider, more and more people came and a question arose as to whether uh, West Germany could take all of these immigrants. It's kind of like the Texas border in the United States now. It was teeming uh, immigration people uh, trying to improve their lives and to breathe free, as free as they could. Um, So I went to cover the burning question of the day, which was, will the West German social safety net hold? And that's the kind of question that uh, our international magazine would ask. It's kind of a Um, it's kind of a, mm, some would call it overly intellectual question, uh, but it was an important question. And so I was in a carpet factory in uh, West Berlin that had been converted into a refugee shelter. And everybody is talking on the phone about... is talking uh, to each other, having heard on the radio that the Berlin Wall was suddenly going to open that very night. Um, And I guess this was actually the night of November 9, not November 8. I arrived there on 8 and started my reporting. And the thing people don't realize about this event is that it was utterly unforeseen. Um, Nobody saw the Berlin Wall, the ultimate divide between the communist world and the capitalist world is opening any time soon. And then all of a sudden, in a heartbeat, it opened. And it opened partly because a mid-ranking German East German official uh, said more than he was supposed to say on the radio. He didn't have clearance from the uh, president of East Germany to say it, but uh, he said it anyway. And you know what? Uh, then people voted with their feet and they marched to the wall. So all of a sudden I had to leave the carpet factory, just being in the right place at the right time. How lucky is that? And go back to my hotel because there were no cell phones and I had to call the editors in New York and I called them and I said, you know, this this cover about the uh, West German social safety net, I think we might have to change it a little bit because the wall is opening. And they actually heard that first from me via telephone from Berlin because there were hardly any Western reporters in Berlin. In the pre-internet days, news traveled much more slowly than it does in our wired world now. Uh, and so that was set in motion. I went down to the lobby of the hotel. I got into a taxi cab. I uh, said to the taxi driver in very bad German um, please take me to checkpoint Charlie because the wall is opening tonight. And he looked around at me like I was a lunatic and he called me uh, a Spaschvogel, which means a silly bird. And uh, nonetheless, I showed him my Deutschmarks and so he drove me to checkpoint Charlie and as he wheeled round into the street uh, where uh, the wall was opening He saw from all the traffic and all the human, it was like a parade and uh, cars and people and honking. And he knew as soon as he wheeled into that main road that it was true that the Berlin Wall was opening. And he had grown up in East Berlin and his family had fled right before the wall uh, went up. And so he said to me as he wheeled around, he said, a traffic jam. It's a beautiful traffic jam. And taxi drivers don't usually say that. Uh, and that wound up being the headline of our coverage of the fall of the Berlin Wall, which uh, was a precursor to so much else that happened in Europe in, in the next few years after after that event.
0: And, and so in that moment, and I can only imagine the adrenaline that must have been running through your body and probably through that cab driver, too. But in that moment, did you just grab your notebook and start documenting everything you saw? I mean, how, how quickly did you act in that moment? I'm sure you were, just like everybody else, probably in your own state of shock.
1: I, I certainly didn't see it coming. And uh, I, I realized how fortunate I was to be a Western journalist, uh, an American journalist in particular, uh, at Checkpoint Charlie, which was an American uh, army checkpoint uh, in the US section of old divided Berlin, uh, I got out and I just threw myself for the next five hours into absorbing everything I could possibly absorb about the sights and the sounds and the people coming across and seeing neon for the first time and people pounding on the cars of these little uh, cruddy cars uh, called trabbies that they made in East Germany. And uh, it was... All I can say is it was the best party I ever attended. It still moves me um, to think about the the liberation of that moment.
0: did the um did you ever allow yourself while you were doing your job? did you allow yourself five minutes to Uh, be human and not be a journalist and just kind of partake in the wonder of trying to experience what these other, these people there were experiencing in terms of how it would affect their lives. Or did you keep your reporter's hat on faithfully the entire night?
1: No, you know, such an overwhelming event. uh, As I think my voice was breaking a little bit, Uh, you can't uh, close yourself off as uh, a witness to history when history is that momentous Uh, It sucks you in. And uh, so I was uh, reporting and uh, partying at the same time.
0: That's a great, just a great visual. Uh, That's, yeah, and truly was um, the break of a lifetime. I mean, to be there and uh, right place, right time. Um, Like you said, it's better to be lucky than good.
1: It is. And for the next two or three days, reporters from all over the world arrived and got their own piece of that story. And speaking of pieces, uh, the people of uh, East Germany and West Germany took pickaxes to the wall. Uh, They physically knocked it down themselves. Uh, And... uh, I do think the story of the 20th century is the story of the triumph of free market capitalism uh, and free markets are uh, a pretty sound principle as is democracy. And both of those principles won uh, that night. Uh, they're both uh, principles that you don't get to just win on one night. You have to uh, preserve both of them uh, very carefully, uh, and with great effort. And I think that's true of today.
0: You know, we're coming up on, coming up on 30 years since that, that event. Have you had the opportunity to visit Berlin since November 9th, 1989? Have you been back?
1: I have, uh, only once or twice. It's an incredibly vibrant city. It used to be half gray and half vibrant, um, when you, I, I would go into East Berlin and see uh, the drabness, uh, the shabbiness, uh, the lack of economic activity, um, the pent up uh, nature of uh, the average person on the street as the world was being drawn ever closer together by technological change. Uh, And now you go to uh, Berlin and it is effectively, after 30 years, one city. Uh, The economic energy is so great that some people are even talking about bringing back uh, socialism because the cost of housing is so great that uh, they feel capitalism is out of control and so (laughs) history goes in cycles but berlin's a better place in uh 2019 than it was in 1989.
0: so uh, i'd like to back up now and and get into the start of your career in journalism um and i've heard and i wondered if you can confirm this story but a mutual friend of ours told me that uh, as i alluded to in my opener you were essentially hired on the basis of a book review that you did as a student because you were not, uh, at least in the academic world, had not been trained as a journalist, yet you saw that as your future. Can you confirm that story about how you were hired at a newspaper out of college?
1: Well, that's an apocryphal story. It was actually three book reviews. And I don't remember what the three book reviews were. But yes, I uh, I guess I, I had and still have a conviction that what journalism actually is, uh, is... Um, good storytelling combined with an eye uh, uh, an, not just an eye a devoted eye on fact and so I in college and graduate school I had studied primarily history and uh, primarily literature and secondarily history that to me is what journalism is it's composed of two parts history and literature so I I felt in in uh, totally enabled to be a journalist. And luckily enough, uh, somebody bought my story. And I got a job uh, at a small newspaper uh, in the capital city in Lincoln, Nebraska, and um, things sailed along from there. So
0: in in 1977, you get hired uh, at the Des Moines Register, and you're put to work as a political reporter and running the Iowa Poll. Uh, which is, I I think, just a tremendous break for a, a young guy. Um, could you describe, you know, how you how you left for Des Moines, and did that event really jumpstart your career in terms of entering political reporting?
1: Yeah. So the Des Moines Register, uh, once again, it's the right place, right time, um, occupied, and still occupies as we head towards the elections in 2020 a really important place in national politics and uh, I had gone from police reporting to criminal courts reporting uh, to uh, the beginnings of government reporting in Lincoln and so I landed in Des Moines as city hall reporter Um, and after six months um, the interest I had in how our society works was clear to my editors and we were getting ready for the next round of Iowa caucuses. Jimmy Carter won Iowa's caucuses in 1976 and that's what elevated them to uh, first place in the national sequence of events. It used to be New Hampshire but Iowa took over in 76 so we're getting ready for 80 And so I get to run this thing called the Iowa Poll, which uh, George Gallup started when he left Drake University um, in Des Moines. Uh, And the register was just a monstrously good newspaper. It circulated in all 99 counties in Iowa, state of 3 million people. It's Sunday circulation was Uh, 600,000 households, which is practically, when you realize how many people there are in a household, almost everybody in the entire state was glued together culturally by this extremely fair-minded newspaper. And the newspaper had this uh, groundbreaking capacity to measure public opinion called the Iowa Poll. And so I... Uh, was sort of at the uh, switch point of being able to measure in the 1980 presidential race uh, which featured Ronald Reagan against George Bush on the Republican side. Uh, I, I I was at the hinge point of what was going on and so in addition to the poll I was also covering the candidates as they came in and I rode around in the backseat of a car with George Bush one. um, And uh, his son, uh, Bush two was sort of his helper. He was a guy in his twenties who was helping his dad and he might've been early thirties, but I'm in my late twenties or early thirties. He was my contemporary. And at the time you don't think about it, but I met during that, 1980 caucus coverage, uh, four of the six presidents that I met and interviewed in my career in a very short amount of time. And so to this day, uh, covering the caucuses for the Des Moines Register is a launchpad, and it it certainly turned out to be that for me.
0: Looking back, was there a common thread among those presidents you covered and in a sense, they weren't. I mean, they weren't presidents yet. But if you could just find a commonality in maybe their motivation or their drive or their level of patriotism, is there anything they all had in common? Is there a you know a, a common thread that, that each of them held, which ultimately helped them capture the presidency?
1: Uh, I don't think there is a common thread. Um, but since I am m- mentioning Bush, one, uh, you know, he won the Iowa caucuses in nineteen eighty. And uh, he exuded basic human decency. Uh, and he spent, he, he essentially lived in Iowa. Uh, and Reagan was the far away uh, expected winner in 1980. And he didn't campaign in Iowa because he figured he didn't need to. And Bush uh, took advantage of the. Uh, retail politics, and he displayed his fundamental decency, which I think was clear in the man to the end. Um, And he won. He won the Iowa caucuses, and that propelled him uh, uh, into New Hampshire, and Reagan then fought back, and Bush didn't win the nomination. Uh, Reagan won the nomination, but Bush became vice president, and that set up the Bush dynasty. Um, and lots of good and bad things happened during the multiple Bush administrations. But if you watched uh, Bush one's funeral or the funeral of his wife, you saw uh, what it means to have uh, someone of character in the highest office in the land. So
0: in 1983... 1983- you get hired by Newsweek, uh, and you move to Los Angeles. Can you describe how that came about, and what was your introduction to LA like? Having you know, going from the midway the heart of the Midwest in Des Moines, uh, to the left coast. I mean, wh- what did that feel like on the first few months on the job?
1: Well, uh, we've had a couple right place, right time stories. This is the wrong place, wrong time story in my career. I. Uh, caught the attention of uh, two or three national uh, news organizations when I was covering the caucuses uh, for the register. And uh, I ultimately decided to go with Newsweek, and they decided that I'd make a great deputy bureau chief in Los Angeles. And I don't know what they were thinking, because uh, the biggest industry in Los Angeles and the biggest role for that um bureau in the then uh, global magazine was to cover the entertainment industry. And I was political reporter. And so the first day I'm in the uh, LA Bureau and the bureau chief, uh, uh, who's a woman named Janet Huck, calls me in front of, uh, I don't know, the 15, uh, 12 maybe employees of the uh, LA Bureau of Newsweek. And She introduces me as the new deputy leader, and it's so great to have you here, Dan. And over in the corner, uh, there was a machine going clickety-clack. That was a telex machine. That's how New York communicated with L.A. at the time, no Internet. And off of the uh, paper printout through the telex machine, clickety-clack, comes this great big query from New York, and it's a Monday morning, and it's the start of the weekly news cycle. And... Uh, Janet reads the telex and she comes back to the circle and she says well New York has decided they want to do a big cover story on Michael Jackson's latest video it's an amazing hit his music video it's it's big and we have to really do this well Dan will you lead our coverage and she handed me the um, paper from the Telex machine. And I looked at it briefly and then I looked up to the circle and I said, who's Michael Jackson? And I honestly didn't know. I was totally insulated from um, the world of entertainment. I was in the world of politics and Janet uh, looked very surprised. And the photo editor said, Dan, do you remember the Jackson five? I said, Yes, I remember the Jackson 5. And she said, do you remember the little guy? I said, yeah, I remember the little guy. And uh, she said, well, he grew up. And uh, I said, oh. And then Janet took the telex back from me. And I didn't lead our coverage of Thriller, which was Michael Jackson's hot new music video. And a year later, I was in Texas covering politics and happy again.
0: So the L- the LA thing did not ultimately did not last that long. Uh, and I imagine I mean, you're a talented enough individual. Had you had you made your mind up, you probably could have figured out how the heck to cover Michael Jackson, but clearly you would have been playing out of position. So you, you, you go to Texas and that was Houston, correct?
1: Yeah, Houston was the bureau um, in Texas. So we covered all of Texas, um, New Mexico, Oklahoma, and Louisiana from Houston.
0: Okay. And, and I, while you were in Texas, was that when you were kind of on the front end of introducing this character to the country, Ross Perot, who ultimately would run for president, I think twice? Um, did that happen during your time in Houston?
1: Uh, Well, I got to know him uh, extremely well and he was quite a character, but uh, I I will always maintain that uh, anybody who fails as a journalist in Texas should never be a journalist because the stories just drop from the skies and the characters are uh, outsized. You can't make these people up and, uh, you know, they don't lack for color. Uh, and Ross Perot was a very good example of that. Uh, I covered business and politics because Texas uh, is all about business and what was happening at the time was that um, the oil economy was crashing but the tech economy was rising and Ross Perot ran a company in Dallas called Electronic Data Systems which was a really good example of an entrepreneurial Um, Sunbelt Nimble uh, Business that was growing ever larger And it was so successful That General Motors Which was a classic example Of a rust belt Dinosaur clunky Old world um, Industry Was seeking new leadership And so electronic data systems and General Motors merged. And uh, we did a cover story in Newsweek about the merger of this nimble Sunbelt company with this rusty, dusty dinosaur company in Detroit. And it was fascinating because there were so many conflicts and contrasts. Well, in the course of that, and I spent probably, I don't know, two and a half months getting to know EDS and General Motors and more importantly, Ross Perot, uh, we developed a a kind of uh, connection. And one day I'm at home at my house in Houston and the phone rings and my wife, uh, Moira, answers the phone. And... Uh, she comes to me wherever I am, whatever I'm doing. We were building a new fence in our backyard, and she said, uh, Dan, the fence salesman, fence salesman's on the phone. So I went to answer the phone, and uh, and and I said hello, and uh, I hear over the, vo- the, the phone, Dan, it's Ross, and It was Ross, and Ross uh, had already done what he was doing in Detroit, and he was asking me if I would consider Ghost writing his autobiography for his upcoming presidential campaign, which didn't happen until 1992 as it happened. Um, But by the time he ran for president, uh, I had turned down that opportunity because I don't believe that journalists should cross the line into... Advocacy, and that would have been doing that. Uh, and by the time he ran, I was in London.
0: So, so you, you didn't write the, didn't help him with the biography, but you certainly saw the way that whatever that unique thing he had could captivate people. What was it about him that was most saleable to the American people? In terms of, uh, I mean, was it just that larger than life Texas intrigue, or was there something else that? allowed him to charm people.
1: I think he uh, was one of the first uh, characters to break the mold. And I think America was getting to the point where the mold of conventional politics was starting to feel uncomfortable. Uh, And he projected a kind of authenticity. And I think he was wrong on some issues and right on other issues. But one thing he was right about was that he was who he was. And he said what he thought. Uh, And uh, you can get into trouble when you go too far in saying that uh, conventional systems of government don't work. I happen to think we're there now, but I also understand the seeds of uh, the authentic seeds of of why this has become an issue and why Washington uh, seemed uh, and seems detached from uh, so many people across the country.
0: Now, by the time you got to Houston, had that was that a promotion to Bureau Chief, or were you still considered a Deputy Bureau Chief at the time?
1: No, I was Bureau Chief in Texas, and I loved it, and I loved the surrounding states as well. Louisiana is so rich in great political and uh, business stories. Uh, New Mexico is so culturally rich. When I was in the L.A. Bureau, I had tried to sell New York on a story about uh, uh, what the in. Uh, Spanish is known as the Reconquistada, the Reconquest, uh, the flood of um, people from Mexico and points south across the border. And they wouldn't do that story from the L.A. Bureau because that's not what they thought the L.A. Bureau was for. The L.A. Bureau was for Michael Jackson. When I got to Texas, I got to start covering that story. And uh, that's an important story today. Um, more than ever,
0: it certainly is. We're we're hearing about it now. That's for sure. Um, describe the job of a bureau chief. What all does that entail, or did it entail at least in those days?
1: So, being a bureau chief, <laughs> it did entail because there were there were things called bureaus, and bureaus were made up of uh, correspondents and stringers and photographers. And photo editors, we had our own little uh, form of state government in the federal Newsweek system. And the great thing about the reason I decided to work for Newsweek rather than the other places I had a chance to work for was they were offering me a leadership role in a bureau. And I didn't want to be an editor uh, and sit in an office and... um, tell other people uh, what to do and parse words all day. I wanted a passport to uh, experience what H.L. Mencken called uh, the wind in your face. And he, he, he was such a an iconic journalist of his time. And he was very clear that if you had to choose between being an editor and a reporter, you should be a reporter because you're out uh, where the wind blows. And uh, the great thing about being a bureau chief is you really didn't have to choose because half the job was editing and, and leadership and the other half of the job was doing the job of a correspondent. And I got to do that in California, Texas, uh, all across Europe and uh, all across the Southeast in my last job for Newsweek in Atlanta. And I feel incredibly fortunate.
0: So dating ourselves back to the the 1980s and early 1990s, what was your uh, the writing environment like typically? What sort of equipment did you work on? Um, you know how? Uh, what was your lead time on a typical long form piece? Um, how many stories were you working on at a time? Just kind of describe for everybody what that writing environment. Uh, consisted of?
1: So uh, when I started uh, at my newspaper in Lincoln, there were only typewriters. There was no internet. There was still hot type. Um, When I got to Des Moines, they had being uh, groundbreaking as they were, they had bought all the computers from United Airlines when United Airlines had their first generation of desktops to move air traffic around the country. So the Des Moines Register was, I think, the second newspaper in the United States to um, switch from typewriters to computers. Uh, And I arrived there in 77, and so I'm used to computers. Uh, There are no cell phones, um, but uh, we were pretty high tech. And then I went to Newsweek in New York in 1983, and I'm amazed to see that everybody in New York at a global magazine is still working on typewriters. So technology arrived in stages. And uh, actually when I got to London in 1989, after almost everybody had computers, there were still four guys in the basement of the London bureau whose job it was to transfer um, cables that came in by telex to London They would retype all of the cables and the the stories of the correspondence from around the world would go under the ocean, under these underground underwater cables across to New York. And... Uh, it's, it, it still amazes me when I think about those four guys who were working class guys down in the basement, but that's how information used to move around. And now it moves around instantaneously without any guys in the basement. We're
0: going to take a (laughs) short time out right here to remind you that today's episode of the washed up journalist podcast is brought to you by legacy preservation. Legacy works with successful people around the country to capture their stories in book form. That's right. Books. You know what I'm talking about. They're pieces of paper bound together by string or glue encased in an attractive looking cover. On those pages, Legacy will tell your story the way you want it told. We interview, research, write, edit, design, and print your family or business's book. Now, I know what you might be thinking, but let me stop you right there. This is not for your own ego. Ask your kids or grandkids if they'd like to know the story of your life. And you don't need to get back to me because I already know the answer. It'll be a resounding yes. Yes. Legacy Preservation, We Write History, yours. Special thanks to Dan Peterson for coming on the podcast with me today, and also special thanks to Kevin McLeod for providing today's soundtrack. Now, back to my conversation with Dan Peterson. Uh, That's a great place to transition now. So on the heels of your success in Texas, you you landed promotion to London. You become the the bureau chief for Newsweek's London office. What was so great about that job in in living in Europe at that time?
1: Well, you know, for my money, and I think anybody's money, the 1990s in Europe uh, that the tectonic plates shifted on November 9th, 1989, and so much changed thereafter. And I got to be there at the hinge point of history. When so much happened, so uh, I saw Margaret Thatcher fall. I got to cover the collapse of the Soviet Union. I got to cover the rise of the European Union. Um, it was just a moment in time that where where everything changed and. You know, I I think all these stories are connected. Margaret Thatcher uh, was Ronald Reagan's uh, date on the national, on the international stage. And they were both um, uh, cold warriors. Uh, And, you know, often when you win your war, uh, it happened with Churchill, uh, it's time for you to go and uh Thatcher's time to go came in 1990. She was the most powerful uh, woman of the 20th century without question. Uh, but she had become arrogant uh, as a result of how much power she wielded. And she tried to implement something called a poll tax, where everybody pays the same property tax, whether... Your property as a hovel or a mansion. Uh, The idea was it was kind of like the flat tax that we talk about sometimes in the United States, where everybody should pay the same amount for public services, uh, whether you're rich or whether you're poor. And that led to big rioting in the streets in London. Um, And I had, you know, as Newsweek's bureau chief, we would go to Downing Street every week to receive a briefing from her. uh, press uh, attache. Uh, and so I was very familiar with Downing Street. Uh, and Newsweek's uh, coverage of the world uh, was pretty friendly to Thatcher because of all the things we talked about when we talked about the Berlin Wall and her leadership role. Uh, she was the one who said uh, to Reagan, uh, I, I, I think we can do business with this man Gorbachev, and it was a striking thing to say, to say as the British prime minister that someone who's the head of the Soviet Union is someone we can trust. And uh, Reagan and Thatcher together, it was Reagan who said, Mr. Gorbachev, take down this wall. So wonderful things happened Uh, as a result of their date on the world stage. But then terrible things happened and Thatcher was about to fall from power and she had one last interview to give and uh, most of the British press had completely uh, insulted her uh, by that stage. And so when she gave her last interview in office and she was just clinging to power, Uh, she gave it to Newsweek and she uh, invited me to come to Downing Street and uh, ask her whatever I pleased and so I walked uh, into the house uh, and it's just a brown brick house you've probably seen it uh, on television Um, and there were no gates in front of it at the time there are now Uh, but I walked upstairs, she's sitting behind her desk. I look over to my left and there are all these guys with boom microphones and they've got tape recorders, the size of small cars. And there are like four of them and they're very intense and they're all wearing headphones. And I wasn't frankly expecting this, but this was an interview where uh, the prime minister might rise or fall based on uh, misspeaking or being misquoted so they wanted to have an accurate record and i clocked all that and i took my little uh japanese tape recorder out of my pocket and i put it down on the coffee table which uh, she was now sitting across from me across the coffee table and i decided to try to cut the tension with a moment of levity and i said um Prime Minister, what is going to happen if your tape-recorded version of this interview and my tape-recorded version uh, should happen to disagree? And then she said, with a really pregnant pause, as only Thatcher can say it, she said, Well, then there would be something wrong with yours. (laughs) <laughs> and that was Margaret Thatcher. You should not mess around with this woman. That's all I'm I'm saying. But uh, I have fond memories and I also have sad memories of um, her reign.
0: And, and yet you charmed her in that intimidating environment under the pressure of uh, members of your own profession kind of lurking over you. You were able to the charmer and um, was it a good interview it was a, it was a very good interview
1: and after she left Downing Street uh, she was demoted to a backbencher which is how it works in Britain so in the United States you go from being uh, an, a president to an ex-president and you have a presidential library and you have secret service protecting you for life but in Britain you're just a member of the parliamentary party and she was assigned a basement office. In, in the House of Commons and she was a backbencher. You go from most powerful woman on earth one day to backbencher with a basement office. And she cast around for a while trying to make that adjustment. And one thing she did was to um, write guest essays for Newsweek and I did uh, ghostwrite those essays. So I would go to her house uh, in uh, London. And I would interview her and she would talk uh, about the state of the world. And we'd turn that into a one or two page essay. Um, And uh, it actually got her in hot water because she referred to her successor in one of her essays as Major. And that was what she was calling him Major. John Major uh, was his name, but she wasn't calling him prime minister major, which British um, etiquette requires. And so Newsweek's uh, Thatcher essay was published, and I I had forgotten to correct uh, form for that. And uh, the tabloid newspapers in London were uh, all ablaze with Thatcher's gross disrespect for Prime Minister Major, he didn't. She didn't even call him Prime Minister, and it was actually my mistake, uh, although she participated in it. But uh, it's tough to go from number one to number nine thousand nine hundred and fifty-seven, or whatever number you had assigned to her at that point.
0: Oh, I I can only imagine. Uh, she clearly trusted you, and some other people that trusted you were members of the royal family and you had the privilege, and I'm going to use the term privilege, you had the privilege of reporting on the royal family. How did that come about, and what was it about your character that allowed you to, to earn their trust and comfort in terms of reporting on them?
1: Well, you know, this is a story about which I feel um, pretty much I f- the way I feel about the Michael Jackson story, um, I think the 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 cold truth is that um, my magazine wanted to assiduously cover the royal family not because it was uh, as important as the fall of the Berlin Wall or the breakup of the Soviet Union or the fall of Margaret Thatcher, but because it sold magazines. It was a fairy tale in the beginning, and then it was a fairy tale gone terribly wrong in the end. and. We had to make a calculation at Newsweek, as did Time, as did so many other American news organizations, um, about uh, the fact that uh, we had declining revenue. We had declining revenue because there were more and more players arriving on the scene. And the surest way, so, you know, the, The information world changed, and Newsweek and Time. And the three U.S. news networks used to be the monopoly providers of national and international news to all of America. And Newsweek was one of two international global magazines. Our audience was getting smaller as cable and the Internet and satellite printing plants came along. And so instead of five providers, you've got 50 and then you've got 500. So you're trying to uh, keep your audience and you're trying to keep revenue uh, and you're trying to make sure you can still cover really critical stories like the war in uh, Yugoslavia as it was breaking up. And you do that by writing a lot about the royal family. And and for my money, you know, that's just candy floss. That's uh, really not important, but it's something people care a lot about. So I did uh, find myself in the position of having to um, make sure that we did the best job we could do covering the royal family. Um, I think the only contribution I made was Uh, to try to correct the record on that story as best I could because most people think of that story and they think Prince Charles was a jerk and Diana was a saint. And I was at a close enough pass um, to know that the truth was more complicated than that. And I think of Diana, and I think of Charles, and I think of two people who were really caught up in the machine of the royal family, which was its own enterprise, and that enterprise had its requirements. And one of the requirements of Charles was that he had to marry a virgin. And uh, in 1982, in Britain, there really weren't that many virgins around. In of of his age. So it was a small pool. And he was in love with somebody else uh, who wasn't a virgin. And the machine said Charles could not marry Camilla Parker Bowles. Uh, The machine said he had to marry a virgin. And the virgin was served up to him by the machine. And they really weren't well suited to one another. Diana fought the machine Uh, in her own way, with her own force of character, uh, and I admire that. But I feel bad that uh, we had to devote so much ink to what's really uh, a very sad story, and Charles uh, is a far better person. Uh, He saw climate change coming way before it became a common topic of conversation. He's a very intelligent man who... Far too many people revile to this day.
0: Do you feel like uh, because of that machine, as you described it, do you feel like the royal family um, is just completely misunderstood by by American consumers of news? Um, and in a sense, are American consumers of news victims of that clickbait, you know, culture of let's write about the royals because it'll sell copies. I mean, is that – Um, Did we never quite get the whole story because of that machine?
1: Yeah, I think that's what I was just trying to describe. Um, We certainly never got the whole story on Charles. Maybe he'll be king and we'll get a a fuller story on that. Um, I think the royal family serves a purpose, a cultural purpose. Uh, It glues society together Uh, there and gosh knows we need some glue right now because so many things are coming apart Um, but basically it reasserts the idea that uh, a class society uh, is the right kind of society and I have a hard time with that I have a hard time with the idea of monarchy and aristocracy maybe I'm an American I don't know but uh, yeah I think uh, this space gets far too much space in our in our in the front of our brains, and <laughs> I went back to uh, I came to Atlanta in ninety six, and I went back in ninety seven when Diana died, and I wound up being in Westminster Abbey. Uh, as the only American journalist in Westminster Abbey when she was buried, which I think was the event watched by more people in the world live on television than any other event in human history, which kind of boggles my mind because Diana was really a... She was a nice young woman who became a a wonderful mother and a champion for good causes, but this is not... uh, the world's greatest person ever. And we did at Newsweek three successive covers on Diana's death. And uh, then we were about to do a fourth one and Mother Teresa died in India. And we faced the question, well, are we going to do a cover on Mother Teresa's death? Are we going to do another cover on Diana? I'm sorry to report that we did another cover on Diana. I think it was the wrong call, Uh, but I didn't get to make that call, and uh, we all make mistakes.
0: That was kind of an interesting time in terms of uh, major figures. I was going to say world leaders, but major figures on the scene. You You had an aging Mother Teresa, whose impending death was certain to garner a lot of coverage. You had an aging Pope John Paul II, same thing. And then Diana kind of stole their thunder by out of the blue, you know, in 1997, I think it was by, um, by, by dying young early in that just that horrible accident. But it was, a, uh, I I mean, I can only imagine the conversations on the, on your end of things about preparing for these inevitable type of stories. Um, how much preparations did you go to in terms of, uh, kind of having bios ready to go of people such as Mother Teresa and people such as John Paul II. And I say such as, which is completely the wrong way to put it because there was nobody like them, but how much prep work was done in advance of impending deaths, I guess is what I'm asking.
1: So Newsweek, when it does obituaries, uh, when it did obituaries, because my magazine is now dead, except uh, in a very pale imitation that lives on, uh, never um, wrote lengthy obituaries like the New York Times still does. Uh, We would do very sort of thumbnail one paragraph obituaries. So it had to be a death that somehow intersected with the zeitgeist. And that's what happened with Diana. Uh, She just became, it's I don't know if you ever watch Entertainment Tonight, I make a point of never watching it, but uh, it does come on right after the network evening news. And so I think uh, to a large degree, journalism has had to struggle in my lifetime against the rise of infotainment. And Diana was one of the great stars of the infotainment world uh where gossip and celebrity are more important than public policy and justice and things like you know the civil rights movement and whether the vietnam war or the iraq war was right or wrong and so uh to answer your question we we didn't prepare for deaths in advance deaths always uh, had to intersect with um some kind of meaningful issue of the moment.
0: Okay. Uh, so in, in 96, you you moved back to the States. Uh, what brought you to Atlanta? Was it uh, just simply the job and a chance to relocate to the U.S.? Was, um, was it because... Th- the situation in Europe had kind of died down, for lack of a better term. What brought you back to the US?
1: Uh, So my children uh, were about to enter high school and junior high school, and we'd been in London for nine years. And they had gone there when they were very little people. And uh, I really didn't want them to grow up as permanent expats. Uh, I wanted them to grow up on both sides of the ocean. And uh, my wife felt the same way. And so we started inquiring about Um, what opportunities existed back in the States, Um, the magazine was shrinking. And uh, so when I went to Europe, there were five bureaus and 14 correspondents. When I left Europe, there were four bureaus and four correspondents. So I went from having a big team to uh, basically a group of stringers. I could see that the, the world was... Um, getting smaller and I thought it was time to and yet my territory was getting bigger so (laughs) I was working instead of 50 hour weeks I was working 60 and 70 hour weeks trying to go places without any resources still deliver the product that people expected so it seemed like a really good thing both from a lifestyle and from a sanity uh good journalism production point of view to come back to the states and uh newsweek offered me a position in the mega bureau i said what's the mega bureau they said well uh we're going to close miami and we're going to close houston and we're going to cover everything out of atlanta and i said oh that sounds exciting i love the whole southeastern part of the united states and there's so much new stuff happening there uh, and what they didn't tell me that was that the mega bureau was not going to have a mega staff, and so <laughs> we had now we had like three people to cover the southeastern quarter of the United States. Um, but it was all okay. Uh, I was really interested uh, while I was in London. Um, Newt Gingrich had. Uh, taken over Congress, and there were all these stories about how the South has risen again. And it was the one part of the US, uh, except for the Pacific Northwest that I had never lived in. I'd gone to school in Boston, uh, grew up in the Midwest, uh, worked in LA, worked in Texas. Uh, The South was uh, interesting to me, and it remains interesting to me because uh, I still believe we're living through the Civil War and uh, that slavery uh, is sort of the spinal issue in our history. Um, So I I got to come back to Atlanta, and uh, it too, like Texas, was a very rich source of stories, partly because Texas was also in in my territory. And so
0: 1996, you have a huge story, you know, thrown on your plate. You have the Olympic Games happening. Atlanta is the host city. And you're all revved up to report on the Olympics, and then you have this unexpected major event, the Olympic Park bombing. Take us through uh, how you covered that story and what were some of the biggest lessons learned in the coverage of that story.
1: Well, one lesson learned is that if you have a team of uh, reporters staying next to the Olympic Centennial Park and you're worried that nobody's going to get any sleep, Uh, Don't issue them all with big earplugs because we got these heavy-duty earplugs because our hotel was right next to the park. And on a um, Friday night, and Newsweek goes to bed on a Saturday, a bomb went off in Olympic Centennial Park. And a lot of our people slept, including myself, slept right through the bomb. And there was no time to put together the cover story except with like four or five of our 25 people. Uh, But the more important lesson is what happened in the week that followed and so I suddenly uh, was detached from covering the games which went on and was assigned to the story of figuring out who bombed the Olympics. And there was a man named Richard Jewell, who was a security guard who fell under instant scrutiny. And you have all of these new um, news organizations, even local TV stations now are going to national events because they have trucks that have satellite uh, stuff on their roof. So everybody is suddenly reporting in a big national scrum of local and regional and national. Everybody is just a tiny sliver of the big pie. And the competition to be first is intense. And in that week of who bombed the Olympics, uh, there was a lot of coverage that said that Richard Jewell uh, was the man and I was never m- more grateful for the fact that Newsweek uh, is judicious uh, because it's weekly and we could weigh the evidence. And I spent all week reporting the Richard Jewel story and it, it wasn't there. But there were a lot of uh, a lot of definitive statements made about his guilt. And I think it's a really cautionary tale uh, that the rush to judgment in the in not the daily news cycle, but the news cycle that's even shorter than hourly, can take us out of the world of fact into uh, a space that is unrecognizable as journalism. And that's what happened with Richard Jewell.
0: Um, and, and remind me, the, the name of the individual that ultimately uh, was believed to have triggered that bomb
1: So the the individual who actually did cause the Olympic Park bombing was a man named Eric Rudolph, and he was a uh, far-right character who uh, lived in the mountains of western North Carolina. And uh, he bombed not just the Olympics, but he bombed an abortion clinic in Alabama, he bombed a gay bar in Atlanta, he bombed an abortion clinic in Atlanta. Uh, And ultimately, uh, he was identified as the lead suspect after Jewel was exonerated. But the police couldn't find him and the FBI couldn't find him. And so I wound up spending uh, three months in the mountains of uh, Western North Carolina, building a psychological profile of this guy, Eric Rudolph. Um, And it was fascinating. Uh, I don't know if you know about the revenuers and the history of how bootleg whiskey was made in Western North Carolina during prohibition and how uh, federal agents came in to find the people who were making hooch. But uh, there's a strong anti-government tradition in the mountains of Western North Carolina. And that's where Eric Rudolph uh, came from. And at one point the FBI had 250 agents on the ground looking for uh, Eric Rudolph in what they correctly identified as a 25 square mile space. And they couldn't find him. And they couldn't find him partly because he was being protected by uh, a network of people in Western North Carolina. But they also couldn't find him because uh, 25 square miles in Western North Carolina are actually 25 cubic miles. And there was a series of caves and networks that he knew how to um, work his way through. uh, And he would raid uh, mountain cabins for toilet paper and provisions and things like that. Ultimately he was caught by the equivalent of Barney Fife. He came from a town called Murphy, North Carolina and he was caught one night going through a dumpster in Murphy long after the FBI took their 250 agents away. He was caught by a night cop uh, who with his flashlight saw somebody rummaging through uh, the dumpster. And Eric Rudolph is now um, spending the rest of his life in maximum security prison in uh, Colorado in um, isolation. Uh, And I think that's probably where he belongs.
0: While we're on the subject of catastrophic events um i was wondering if you could share a few takeaways from uh, the horror of having to cover something that our country's become all too familiar with and that's school shootings um just personally i was in high school in 1999 when the columbine shooting happened and um, it's been something that we as a country have kind of lived with since that time So just as a journalist covering it, what are the what stands out the most about the horrors of those events and our country's attitude toward them?
1: So um, I've covered, I think, six school shootings in my journalism career. Uh, The worst one actually happened before I came back to the United States. It happened in a place called Dunblane, Scotland. Uh, And it was in the last month of my time in Britain um, and a man wearing a raincoat uh, who had been a scout leader and had been kicked out of scout leadership because he was a pedophile, walked into a school in this beautiful little town in northern Scotland called Dunblane and He thought that he was going to be walking into an all-school assembly, and he thought that he was going to open up his raincoat and um, shoot the entire school uh, with as much uh, ammunition as he could muster from his two automatic weapons. He threw open the doors to the gym, and it was then that he realized that the school schedule had changed, and in front of him stood uh, 24 four first graders and their teacher. Uh, And they were having gym class instead of an all school assembly. And he took out his machine guns and he mowed them all down and he went and they all died. And he went out behind the gymnasium and he shot himself. And I was filing that story. I went up to Dunblane that happened, I think on a Thursday, I, I reported the story on Friday, and I was filing it on Friday night. And I filed lots of stories from long distance over 25 years in journalism. But that's the only story where in the midst of writing it at 3 a.m. in my hotel room, I broke down in tears.
0: Uh. I I think you just answered my question. It's just a... uh... It's a, it's a horror that, especially if you're a parent, you just, you can't escape the, uh, you know, you hear about one of those and you hear about 10 of those. And it's just, uh, I think it's one of the biggest problems consuming our society right now is what we do about this, just epidemic of these horrible events. And it seems like we're hearing more about them, not less about them.
1: Right. So here's the hideous point. Uh, he. he, And tears aside, uh, Britain uh, radically changed its gun laws after that event. And then I came back to the States and there was a string of school shootings in the southeast, uh, one in Fort Smith, Arkansas, and one in Paducah, Kentucky. And I wound up having to cover those events too, which are the hardest events in the world to cover. And then Columbine happened. And, you know, Columbine was our Dunblane, but... As a result of Columbine, even though it was hideous in its own way, it's terrible to see high school kids die. It's worse to see first graders die, I would submit, but it's terrible to see high school kids die and nothing uh, effectively has changed in our country. And so we go from Columbine to Parkland, but we don't seem to be able to muster the strength as a society to uh, take on the evil that some people think the Second Amendment uh, embeds in our society. I, uh, I certainly don't think that that's what the founders intended when they drafted the Second Amendment um, inside the need to have a well-regulated militia. Uh, it wasn't about a personal right to bear arms, but we have a long way to go to correcting that Um Massive hole in our civil society.
0: I want to uh, wrap up before I monopolize your entire afternoon. I, w- I want to wrap up with a couple big picture questions about the state of journalism in our country. I want to start by asking you a question. Having been all around the world and having observed uh, consumers of news in markets around the world, where do Americans fall on the spectrum of uh, savvy consumers of news? Um, and and what contributing factors um, cause you to to answer however you do? Well,
1: uh, I think you used to be able to draw distinctions around that. So I was always struck when I was in London by what an amazing conversation I could have about world events with British taxi drivers, because British taxi drivers listened to Radio 4 of the BBC. And In Britain, at the time at least, I don't know the statistics now, 34% of the British people listened to the BBC every day, Radio 4, or one of its uh, other constituent uh, components. In the United States, our equivalent to the BBC would be national public radio or uh, public television. And the last time I saw saw data on that, it was one or 2% of Americans. Uh, so I think if you'd asked me that question, uh, at the end of my journalism career in 2000, I would say, wow, there's a big difference between how Americans consume news and how, uh, people in Europe consume news and Europeans are much more sophisticated and less insular because the United States is really a great big Island surrounded by two oceans, uh, I thought when I went to London that I was going to cover an insular society uh, and I discovered, looking back across the ocean, that the country I came from was actually the insular society. I think the answer to the question has changed in the last 20 years because now people in Britain and people in the United States and people in Germany and people in China even, we all swim in the same internet sea. We all uh, are drinking the same soup and some of the soup is tasty and some of it's poison and so i think with globalization and the advance of technology that uh, national distinctions don't mean nearly as much as they used to
0: that's that's well said actually that's a well thought out answer and i could you have ever imagined in say the, say 1990 or even maybe 1995 96 when you first even heard of the internet, um, could you imagine we'd be where we are today, where so much news is consumed on social media and and, and not in the, uh, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, or the five o'clock evening news? I mean, was there a, even the smartest person projecting forward? Could they have ever imagined we'd have come so far so fast? Well, you know, it's been a continuing story
1: of incredible excitement at how the world is now flat and it it used to not be flat. We all are instantaneously in communication with one another. Uh, The price for that is that what happens in the flat world is that misinformation and disinformation are uh, just as uh, venerated as information. And there's no distinction between news and fake news and everybody's their own publisher. And, you know, I am prepared to believe that there's something ultimately liberating about everybody getting to be their own publisher. But right now I, I still lean towards the conclusion that the world needs an editor and we live in an unedited world. And so when there is no editor, Ultimately, there are no facts and we live in a fact-free society and that's the only way you can explain how we can have a president of the United States who has such blatant disregard for facts and who lies uh, regularly. Uh, And the number of lies has been well documented and I've lost track of the thousands of thousands. But... Ultimately, if we don't have fact, we don't have civil society, and I think that's what newspapers delivered. They delivered a world where there was a town square, and we had an assumption that um, right-thinking human beings would look at the facts and make up their minds, no matter what predisposition they came from, the facts would help lead the way to uh, an outcome and public policy and a president. We're not in that world anymore. Uh, I just was on a vacation in Portland, Maine, and I was walking with my wife down the street and uh, we walked, after dinner, towards City Hall, which was beautifully lit. And next to City Hall, there was uh, the old newspaper building in downtown Portland called the Portland Press. And the Portland Press vacated this big-shouldered brick building, six stories tall, right next to City Hall. And they're now a website. Uh, and. The building they vacated is now a boutique hotel. And I think that sort of hovers as a really strong metaphor for what we've lost when we lost so many robust local newspapers all across the United States, because that was what the founders were counting on when they built our framework for government. it's like the floor of our uh, society has rotted through. And I don't want to succumb to despair. I believe that ultimately uh, things come right in the end and the ship rights itself in the end. But uh, we're going through such a wild west of change in how we uh, exchange uh, truth on the planet uh Uh, I sometimes wish I lived in a more civilized place than the wild west, but there you have it. Here's where we live.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it is what it is. And I guess we wait and see where it goes. Um, Listen, I want to wrap up with a little bit about what you're doing these days, post journalism. Um, Explain to me your kind of second career in this early childhood uh, field and, and the good work you're doing there.
1: So uh, in the 1990s, we had a huge breakthrough in brain science, Um, and we learned really for the first time, partly thanks to um, imaging of the brain, uh, things we never knew before about child development. And Newsweek did cover after cover in the 90s, my last decade at the magazine, about this brain science Uh, and what it meant about how much more we should be focusing on the beginning of life if we want to empower uh, human potential. And uh, partly thanks to the accident that I grew up in Omaha, I had the chance to, um, and and partly thanks to the fact that I was a journalist uh, with some analytical uh, skills, uh, I got the chance to uh, come back to Omaha and help uh, the Buffetts uh, with their powerful investment in education, uh, which wound up being a powerful investment uh, in early education. And I got to do that for 11 years. And that was great. And we did some significant uh, things. We built a network of 24 schools called Educare Schools, and we built a couple of public policy initiatives. And I traveled around every week on an airplane, just like I did in journalism. And then I ran out of gas. And so uh, now I work uh, really on the same uh, cause uh, for a place called the Atlanta Speech School. but. We have the three biggest foundations in the southeastern United States funding an effort uh, to create high quality teacher training in the birth to third grade space because one of the worst things in early childhood is we have a very badly trained workforce. We're way under invested in this space based on what the brain science tells us we should be doing. And so we're building a distance learning platform with the support of actually more than a dozen philanthropies um, that's not PowerPoints online. It's more like an interactive movie. And it's for children, Uh, it's, it's ultimately for the children but it's for the teachers of children from birth through third grade. And we're growing very rapidly because of the power of all things, the internet. And so that's why we can reach 65,000 teachers now. And three years ago, we were only reaching 10,000. So there are real benefits to the world being flat. And this is really high quality professional development uh, and very high tech. That's one reason I believe that ultimately we're going to uh, benefit from the internet more than we suffer from it, uh, but w- we're still working out the protocols.
0: Well, that's that's great to hear about that. And I've seen uh, here at Omaha, I've seen some of that work firsthand, and it's just awesome what they're doing. And I think that uh, I think as as a society, we are finally ripe for some change there because the the brain science is not it's undeniable at this point and. Uh, we're starting to, I think it's no longer just the scientists that are recognizing the brain science. It's the average mother and father out there that are, are learning about why this is such an important phase of life. And and I think we're hopefully headed in the right direction there. So.
1: Oh, thank you very much. It's so important to realize the importance of language and literacy in this equation. And so, you know, I started as an English major and I'm ending. Focused on language and literacy, and uh, that's the circle of life. If you just understand one fact, uh, professional class kids, by the time they're three, have heard thirty more, thirty million more words than poor children here in their home environments. Thirty million more words. Those aren't words on TV or the radio or in a song. Those are. Uh, interaction words delivered by a human being, and that thirty million word gap. Uh, and working class kids are much closer to poor kids in terms of the number of words they hear. If we can create ecosystems where everybody understands that talking to your baby, your baby isn't a watermelon. Your baby is a baby, and. Babies are receiving language actually in utero. The brain science shows that now, too. You ought to be talking to your belly if you're pregnant. (laughs) But a lot of people don't know that. And so there's a lot of potential to benefit from uh, advances in science and uh,
0: technology. Well, listen, Daniel Peterson, this has been just an excellent interview. I, I really appreciate your time. Uh, we're just a few episodes into this thing, but I really like the way it's going. And, uh, and I appreciate your willingness to spend some time with me here and discuss your career. And I'm sure everybody's going to love hearing about it. And, uh, I just couldn't be more grateful. So thank you so much.